Welcome to McGonigal's Chronicles, Making Montana Connections. I'm Tim McGonigal. If you glance at Paul Wiley's resume, historical writer might not be the first thing that comes to mind. But in recent years, the Livingston-born son of school teachers who grew up in White Sulphur Springs has penned some amazing books about the Treasure State's past. The Irish General goes in depth on the life of Thomas Marr, an early territorial governor of Montana who gained fame on three continents. Blood on the Marias tells the story of the Baker Massacre, the January 1873 killing of 173 Indians in sub-zero conditions. His latest work is the Golden Bobcats, a look at one of Montana's greatest basketball teams that many have never heard of. But before he wrote those books, he made an impact as a lawyer, a patent examiner, and a rocket engine manufacturing engineer. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Paul Wiley. Paul, I know your parents uh, probably knew you were going to be leading an amazing life when you were born on Christmas Day back in 1936. That, that's amazing. Well, I'd, I'd, I've been robbed with the pleasure of a birthday my entire life, Tim. I just sit <laughs> in the corner in the dark and, and wait for people to forget to say happy birthday. Yeah, and your, your son Tom told me that your, your nickname, uh, pardon the pun, was, was Nick growing up. It, it was, yes. <laughs> All right. Yeah. But, Still known uh, by that name to many in White Sulphur Springs. Yeah, that's right. Uh, grew up in White Sulphur Springs. Uh, talk, talk about that and, um, you know, the, the growing up in, in Marr County and, and White Sulphur Springs. Well, Tim, my parents were school teachers. Mm -hmm. And uh, my dad was the school superintendent in Wilsell when I was born at the end of 1936. And then about five years later, he got the job in White Sulphur Springs. And so the family moved all the way from Wilsell to White Sulphur Springs. And that's where I went to school and graduated from high school there. Uh, along the way, my dad quit teaching school. I was about in the eighth grade and he bought a ranch and he wanted to go into ranching. He had a degree in agriculture. And, uh, uh, Unfortunately for me, maybe the ranch was almost within walking distance of town. And uh, that gave me the job of getting out and feeding cattle early in the morning and still finishing in time to get to school. Okay. So I was, I, I was a, a true definition of slave labor, I think, in those <laughs> days. All right. Now, an another person who uh, has a tie to White Sulphur Springs, the uh, legendary writer Ivan Doig. Uh, did you know him growing up? Uh, not only knew him, Tim, but we were good friends. And uh, for a few years before he died, Ivan and I were, were casual friends. We'd exchange emails and so on. But Ivan um, was being raised uh, by his grandmother in Ringling, and then to go to school, uh, he was boarded with different people in town, and for a couple of years, he boarded right across the street from us, so we would walk to school together. Uh, he is, is uh, th two and a half or three years, he was two and a half or three years younger than I am. Okay. Was his life as a writer and experience as a writer that that uh, kind of uh, lead you in that uh, direction too? Jim, I, I think maybe uh, if you're brought up in a small town, everyone is looks at every other person, and if anyone is doing anything, they think they can do the same thing. <laughs> and I guess I probably looked at uh, 
Ivan and his huge success mm-hmm. and uh, uh, just a gigantic monumental author. And I said probably to myself, I hope I didn't say this to anyone else, but I probably said, if he can get out a book, I can get out a book. <laughs> I, I had no ideas of, of his type of success, just getting the dang thing out there. Yeah. Well, Paul, we're going to talk about your books here in just a minute, but uh, I wanted to talk to you about uh, uh, while you were growing up and you decided to go to MSU and you uh, went there to become a chemical engineer. Talk about the thought process behind that. It, Tim, I, I expect it wasn't much of a thought process. <laughs> uh, at, at that time in history and in this country, uh, chemical engineering was a very popular uh field to be in if you could get the degree, and it, w- it was hard to get the degree. It took all sorts of math and chemistry uh, in college, but uh, I, I did get the degree, and I think the only reason I, I took chemical engineering was it, it seemed to offer the, the best possibility of getting a job, and maybe a good job. And back in those days, people weren't asking themselves, uh, what they wanted to do for their lives and their life's work, they were asking themselves, how am I going to make a living? And this this is sort of the thought process. Okay. Well, after college, uh, talk about your, your first job there. It was uh, down in Utah, right? It, it was, Tim, and uh, uh, it... it it's relevant to Great Falls and the the Minuteman missiles uh, that are are, are being uh, managed by Maelstrom Air Force Base. And uh, at the time I graduated from college, it was in 1959, and there's sort of grumblings of the Cold War going on, and a priority in the country was to develop ballistic missiles to defend against ballistic missiles coming from Russia and other places if they ever came. And um, so at at the time I graduated, uh, the Minuteman missile engines, uh, at least two of them were being developed in Utah. And Hercules Powder Company in Salt Lake City had the third stage engine. And as a young engineer, I had the job of, of heading up a group that was responsible for having uh, developmental engines manufactured and then put in storage where they would just stay for quite a few years. And in our case, the engines were manufactured in Utah uh, in Salt Lake City and then shipped up to Hill Air Force Base in Ogden and put into uh, defense uh ammunition bunkers up there that were converted for that purpose. Uh, I saw a report after it became declassified some years later that the engines had generally performed well after storage. And of course, this this was the purpose of putting the engines there to see if they would perform after they'd been stored a long time, simulating the silo conditions that we have now. I know back then a lot of people were uh, were really concerned about uh, the whole the Cold War and uh, how how serious was it from from your perspective? We we took it as as young engineers, uh, almost all of us on our first jobs. 
we took it very seriously. Uh, we would work late at night, uh, uh, working in the plant, manufacturing, uh, making sure the engines were, were put together right and on time. And uh, we, we felt a certain urgency. We really did. Okay. From uh, 1962 to 64, you worked in Washington, D.C. as a patent examiner. Explain what, what that exactly uh, entailed. Well, Tim, in the, uh, a patent examiner works in the uh, U.S. Patent Office and uh, has the responsibility of reviewing and examining the applications for patents that are sent in from all over the country, of course, and uh, determining if they should be issued as uh, full United States patents. And that's what a patent examiner does. And there were about, at that time, I would say about 1,200 patent examiners working in the patent office. Uh, I was a junior member of the examining team. It takes quite a few years to to gather all the tools to be able to do that. Uh, my real purpose there was, was to provide some daytime work so I could go to law school at night. I wanted to get another degree. I wanted it to be in law. And it was perfect because Washington, D.C. had four evening law schools attached to uh, the four major universities there. And uh, when you, you did uh, become a lawyer, you continued in... Uh work with with patents is that correct that that's correct Tim um, uh, by the time I got my law degree I'd been in the patent field for three years and uh, it's it's a field that requires experience uh, if you're looking for a job and I had the right amount of experience and there were lots of jobs and uh, so it, it Kind of the plan sort of worked, as, as clumsy as it seemed to be. Um, uh, I, I worked myself a lot, but I, I didn't get done what I intended to be done. I came out of Washington, D.C. with experience and a law degree. Yeah, so, so from there, you're, uh, I, did you move down to California? Is that where you were? Uh, you worked with California and Montana? Is that, if I read your uh, bio correctly? Uh, Tim, I first went to Utah, Utah returned okay. to Utah, because I, I thought it might be a nice place to live. And uh, it really didn't offer the professional challenges I was looking for. So I took a job uh, that was actually in New Jersey, but it was working for a company in Los Angeles. It was then known as the Rexall Drug and Chemical Company, and the name was later changed to Dart Industries, uh, naming the company after the chief executive of the company. Okay. Uh, during I was in New Jersey for uh, about a year and a half, and then I moved to Los Angeles uh, with the rest of the corporate staff there. Okay. Now, during your career, Paul, as a lawyer, uh, you worked on uh, some very notable cases. What are some of the ones that, uh, that stand out that people might, uh, might uh, be familiar with? Well, Tim, I, I, I think I tell everyone, and I, I tell, pinch myself every now and then, uh, after I left Dart Industries, I started my own private practice. And, uh, I, of course, like most lawyers in the United States, was a member of the American Bar Association, but I did committee work there. I, I was on committees, and I was headed up. Uh, minor committees, and one of the committees I headed up was the evaluation 
uh, economic evaluation of patents. And because of that, people started asking me to be an expert witness in large patent infringement cases. And there was one big one going on in the country uh, in that time, and Polaroid um, uh, camera company and film company was suing Kodak uh, on colored instant photography. And many people will not remember instant photography uh, at, at this date because it's all been replaced by, by digital photography. But it was certainly the rage of the time for about 20 years. And Polaroid sued Eastman Kodak. Eastman Kodak hired me to be their damages expert on a reasonable royalty to work at trial and testify at trial as to what measure of damages Polaroid should get uh, from Kodak. Uh, infringement had already been found. And that section, that phase of the trial has lasted for about five years. But uh, Polaroid at one time was asking for $16 billion, which doesn't sound much like much today. We're talking about trillions of dollars. But back in those days, it was a gigantic number. Yeah. And the case, case of course, was, was very famous for that. Right. So, Paul, during this, this whole time, talk about uh, your, I know you've always loved history, but uh, talk about how the writing starts to come into it. And when did you start thinking, I could uh, seriously become a writer of some uh, history, history of Montana and some of the more notable things in, in Montana history? Tim, I, I, I think even to this day, I've not really seriously decided that. <laughs> but I keep trying. <laughs> and, uh, uh, it's sort of an approach to things. Uh, uh, in, in time, I, I was working out of Los Angeles, and uh, uh, things were, were getting a little dicey there, we thought. Uh, Arlene and I had young children. They were ages three and five then. And you know one of them very well. It's my right. son, Tom Wiley, who's... who's uh, <laughs> with you there at the station. That's right. And uh, we, we decided that maybe we would move to Montana. Uh, we really decided that after buying a summer place outside of Bozeman, and we came up to spend the summer, and at the end of the summer, it was simply a situation where no one wanted to come home or go back to Los Angeles as home. So we bought a permanent place in Bozeman, and we've been there ever since. And um, uh, it, it's one of those things I had to look at, at my line of work, and I was ready to do whatever I had to do. Well, it turned out because uh, I, I had this significant uh, portfolio of expert witness cases that was just fine. I lived and worked in, in Bozeman. And people would come out to visit from New York and Chicago, and they love visiting here. And so that was how the practice continued for a while. And then uh, we get to about 95, and Arlene had a cancer diagnosis that was quite serious. Okay. And, of course, the boys aren't very old at that point, and I decided I had to quit any traveling just so I could be home. And... Um, uh, traveling was very limited, and I my agreements uh, required that if people wanted to 
talk to me in a meeting. They had to come to Bozeman. I didn't think that would work, frankly. I, I said, this is going to lose a lot of business, but it, sure enough, it did work. People love to come to Bozeman, particularly in the summer, and they might throw in a Yellowstone Park trip. Yeah. So that's that's at that point, uh, I, I decided that maybe I should look towards getting totally getting out of the business, and I I did uh, by about nineteen by by about the year two thousand. I, I would say it was sort of a unform informal unofficial retirement from from my work although some work continued over and i did other things so tim to answer your question <laughs> what how did i get into this dang book book writing thing yeah uh, uh the uh, uh the the idea was sort of suggested to me by uh, pierce mullen in bozeman he is was head of the history department at Montana State, and he and I were friends. We were members of a kind of a study club, and I gave a paper there, uh, and I thought I would do it on Thomas Francis Marr, and Pierce said, gee, that was pretty good. You should do some more on that, and I said, oh boy, you know, this all I need is a little bit of encouragement, so I decided I'd try to write a book on it, and that's really how it got going. Um, I didn't expect much out of the book. I just hoped to get it published, and I finally contacted the University of Oklahoma Press, a, a publisher of many Western books, and they, they wanted to publish the book. And um, so that, that it finally got done. Yeah, and that, that book was The Irish General about Thomas, yes. Thomas Francis Marr. And uh, he's a fascinating figure, uh, not just in Montana, but uh, really all over the world. He, he, he led an amazing life. He, he really is, and, and his name is known in, in a lot of countries. Uh, I, I might add that White Sulphur Springs is the county seat of Marr County, right. and it was named after Thomas Francis Marr when he was acting territorial governor in 19, I'm sorry, in 1866. And um, uh, I was being brought up in White Sulphur Springs. I always knew it was Marr County. And I always knew that Thomas Francis Marr was depicted on the statue in front of the state capitol building uh, on on top of a horse. And I didn't know much else, and, and I thought I'd look into that a little. And I was surprised, frankly, to find out how famous he was in Ireland, uh, much more even than probably Montana, and how famous he was worldwide. Yeah. And so... Given his fame, I thought, well, that might be nice to uh, put in a book. And uh, it, it, while in Ireland as a general there, was, is it true he was then banished to Australia? Is is that correct? It, he was was banished to uh, Tasmania. Tasmania, okay. Which was was more the Irish penal colony in those days, and he hung around there for. Uh, a year, some months, and so on, and he escaped from Tasmania and got back to New York City. And of course, in New York City, with its Irish immigrant population, he was an immediate hero when he got off the boat there. And then, of course, he, he did a number of things. He was a lecturer. Uh, he he uh, uh, had a newspaper 
and when the Civil War came along, uh, he enlisted as the head of the Irish Brigade out of New York City and uh, was, was in the Civil War. And that, of course, is, is the source of the title, the Irish General. He was a Civil War General. And then he makes his way to Montana and uh, became the first territorial governor. He, he was actually the uh, second, second territorial okay. governor, Tim. Uh, uh, he, he might as well have been the first. <laughs> the first actual territorial governor was Sidney Edgerton. Okay. And uh, he didn't do that much. And he finally left the state and kind of handed the sheaf of papers to Marr and said, here's the business of the state, you, you run it. <laughs> and so Mar, Mar did. And of course, there was a lot of conflict because he was a, a polarizing figure in those days. And um, uh, he was not loved by everyone. He was loved by many. <laughs> and uh, uh, he finally met his end uh, at Fort Benton, where he fell off a boat. And of course, the big issue uh, in history is whether he actually fell off the boat or he was pushed or some, and done, done away with in some other way by his detractors. And that, that is still an issue. And uh, Tim, I might mention that uh, uh, I actually offered a play uh, and recruited a cast on five different occasions. The play has been put on in Fort Benton and White Sulphur Springs in Billings in Virginia City, and the last one was in the Supreme, old Supreme Court chambers in the Capitol building in Helena. And that play is a mock coroner's inquest into the death of Thomas Francis Marr. And it uses actual facts taken from the book. It uses the characters that were alive when and around Marr when he was there. And the result is sort of by, in the majority has been that that it was a homicide and Marr was probably pushed. Now by who, we, we aren't quite sure, but many people are saying Wilbur Sanders was, was the culprit. Okay. All right. So uh, from the Irish General, another book you wrote was called Blood on the Marias. Talk about... Uh, Talk about that one. That's another interesting book about another piece of Montana history that maybe not a lot of people know about. Tim, that 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 book came about. I, w I was through with the Irish General, and and uh, once you get through the pain of the editing and getting it published and and all of this stuff, you're you're kind of left with a void. And I thought, well, you know, I'm I'm retired now. I can kind of do anything I want, and. But what I'd really like to do is write another book, or maybe two, and uh, or maybe three. And um, so I, I was just sort of looking around for a topic, and I ran on to what was known as then and now as the Baker Massacre. And uh, in the Baker Massacre, troops that were at Fort Ellis outside of Bozeman, Montana, mm -hmm. and it was regular Army troops, who were stationed there, went up to the Marias River uh, a little southeast of Shelby and uh, found a Pagan camp, um, that would be the Blackfeet Indians, Pagans, found a Pagan camp 
and um, they mistakenly thought it was the right camp and they were going to punish uh, a perpetrator of crimes, they thought, and they got the wrong camp and they ended up massacring 173 people according to their official count. And in my book, I, I think I've gotten up to, well, it could have been well over 300. And uh, of course, there was some attempt to just forget that and so on. And there have been articles written about it, uh, but there, there are uh, even some books, but there's not been an in-depth book. And uh, I attempted to provide that. Yeah, and I think uh, I was reading that uh, when we talk about Montana history, everybody seems to remember the uh, the Battle of the Little Bighorn, General Custer. But again, this is a, this is a very significant event in Montana history that uh, doesn't get a lot of uh, that a lot of people just don't know about. Tim, I I think you hit on the reason that it's the Little Bighorn Battle, the General Custer Battle. And the reason is it is so famous, and there's still a book coming out on it about every two years. Mm -hmm. And it is just so well known now and so famous that uh, it, it just overrides any consideration of any other battles in Montana. And one of them, of course, is the Baker Massacre. So both of these books, The Irish General, Blood on the Marias, they have been published, they're available. How can people... Uh, get their hands on those. Well, in, in Great Falls, um, they're carried at the C.M. Russell Museum Bookstore, mm -hmm. uh, at Barnes & Noble, uh, at Cassiopeia. Andrew has them there. Uh, and I, I'm not quite sure at this point where else. Uh, when I get back up to Great Falls again in about a week, I'll, I'll kind of look around and see if I can suggest to people that they, uh, others that they might want to carry them. But I think you'll be able to get a copy at those places. All right. Now, Paul, you've got another book that you're working on right now, and this one is very interesting, especially for sports fans. Uh, one of the great sports teams in Montana history, the Golden Bobcats. Talk about when when that era was and what that uh, what that book is about. Thanks, Tim, for introducing that. Um, the um, uh, the Golden Bobcats uh, were the 1929 Montana State College. Uh, Montana State was not then a, a university. It was called a college, and it became a university just by name change later on. But uh, they were at Montana State College. And they won the uh, Consensus National Collegiate Championship that year uh, with a, a with by playing 38 collegiate games or amateur games and winning 36 of them and losing only two, and that was quite a feat because they were back and forth on the train to Utah, to the uh, West Coast, even to other places. And uh, uh, it was just a, a demanding schedule. But they, they had excellent players, and the newspapers picked up on them. And in those days, there wasn't like an NCAA playoff tournament like they have today, where, where the 
you get down to two teams playing for a championship. It's just by consensus. But the, the papers in the U.S. agreed that the Montana State College basketball team was the best in the nation that year. And with many, many citations of that. Uh, the uh, the coach of that team was Ott Romney, correct? And he, uh, people that are familiar with the MSU campus, Romney Hall, Romney Gymnasium, uh, he uh, he was a pretty big deal at uh, at Montana State. You know, Ott, Ott Romney was a big deal uh, in Montana and at Montana State, and uh, but uh, he was not a Montanan. He, he came out of Utah, and uh, he was a member of the Big Romney clan. And uh, George Romney was his cousin, and George Romney was the father of uh, presidential candidate, now a U.S. Senator Mitt Romney uh, of Utah, and other famous Romneys there. And Ott Romney um, uh, was... Uh, a member of that family, and they were great athletes and very competitive. And uh, uh, he came up as coach at Montana State in about, uh, I think, 1920. Uh, he had actually been at Montana State as a player in 1916, I believe, and had played one year at Montana State and picked up a degree here. And then he coached for a while at Billings High School. So he had a connection with Montana, but he, he, his true roots were in Utah. And he coached here for about four or five years, and I think he looked towards getting players that would better suit a style of play he envisioned, which was a fast break, pressing defense, uh, more modern basketball than they played then where they just kind of stood around and passed the ball and mm -hmm. it wasn't very exciting. And um, uh, Ott finally uh, hired a, an assistant coach who had worked with him at East High School in Salt Lake City where he had coached and uh, his name was Schubert Dyke and he came up to Montana to be assistant coach and uh, uh, between he and Ott, they got in touch with some Utah players. And that in itself is, is kind of a whole story. But he found in southern Utah, at, uh, in St. George, at Dixie Junior College, and in uh, uh, Parowan, Utah, uh, uh, one player coming out of high school, but his older brother, an absolute star, at Southern Utah University, which was then known as Branch Agricultural College. And um, they were uh, junior colleges. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, it's, it's not widely known, and I, I discovered this in my research, that these players had actually uh, uh, had the, the player from, from uh, St. George was Cap Thompson or Ashworth, Thompson, more correctly, or John Ashworth Thompson, to be totally correct on his name. And he was a four, the four-year All-American and just an amazing player. And the other really good player was Frank Ward out of Paramount, Utah, who had gone down to Cedar City to Branch 
Maché Agricultural College, and they were not picked up by Utah schools, and there were three of them in the same conference that Montana State was in, and that would be Utah, Utah State, and Brigham Young University. Wow. Uh, I think the reason was, and I, I speculate a little on the reason in the book, and you'll see it when it comes out, I think the reason was that uh, the Utah schools amongst themselves were considering junior college um, participation by players to, to eat up uh, eligibility on a year-for-year year year basis. So these players had played about two years for junior colleges. Uh, Montana State decided that they had really just gone to kind of an advanced prep schools, or they could say they had, and so they came up and enrolled at Montana State and were given four years of eligibility oh, okay. if they enrolled as true freshmen, which they did, starting a lot of coursework over Okay. Now, another uh, key player on that Montana State team is one that uh, some people might not, uh, I, sh I should say, everybody probably knows the name, Max Worthington, because when you go into the field house, you're going into Worthington Arena to watch a Bobcat game, and that's, uh, that's named after Max, right? It, it sure is. Tim, and I'm so happy you mentioned that because uh, uh, Max Worthington is someone I've known all my life. Um, uh, he was a good friend of, of my dad and my uncles, and he was always in our home, it seemed like, and they'd go do this, a lot of fishing together <laughs> and things like that. So I'd known Max ever since I, I was a kid, and he, he was uh, the best model of a true gentleman I've ever seen, I think. And uh, he was also very knowledgeable and very introspective about the Golden Bobcats. And I spent a lot of time growing up, and then after I moved back to Bozeman, uh, leaning over the fence uh, at football, football practices uh, and talking to Max Worthington about the Golden Bobcats. And he remembered he had all the insights and how they played and, and what the weaknesses and the strengths might have been. And um, uh, I was, it, it was something you can't research. It's just something you know from being around the person right. and hearing them. Okay. Well, uh, another book I think that as I read uh, some of your background that, that you're like, uh, you're, you're working on and hopefully going to get going here is one called Taylor and Rose, The Gordons of White Sulphur Springs. Can you tell us briefly about this? Because this is another fascinating story that uh, the people might not know about other than those in White Sulphur Springs. This is um, uh, kind of an unusual story. It's very unique to White Sulphur Springs. Uh, but but uh, the Gordons were a a uh, African-American family in White Sulphur Springs. And when we moved there in 1940, uh, they were the only such family there. And Rose Gordon ran a cafe. And I remember we, we had the most delicious chicken dinner there when I was a little kid after we first arrived all the way from Wilsell in White Sulphur Springs. <laughs> And uh, she was uh, uh, just a part of the town um, there, and she, she was always warm and friendly and, and talkative and uh, helped out an awful lot of people 
in town with different things. She became a physical therapist and uh, uh, took training in it. And um, uh, in those days, not everyone was, you know, had availability to people who might help help them out with massage, stretching, things of those natures. But but Rose did. She had uh, an older, uh, I'm sorry, a younger brother, Taylor Gordon. And Taylor Gordon uh, didn't live in White Silver Springs for the first part of our time there. He was in New York City. And the reason he was in New York City is he had kind of been discovered by John Ringling of the Ringling Brothers Circus. And for those who don't know, the Ringlings uh, out of, I think it was Baraboo, Wisconsin, was the the sort of the headquarters for the circus. They decided they wanted to live in Montana. The town of Ringling was named after them, and they had a big mansion in White Sulphur Springs. And um, uh, John Ringling had observed that Taylor had this beautiful singing voice, uh, just an incredible singing voice. So he took him with him back to New York City, introduced himself to some people, and Taylor became a an entertainer and uh, singer in New York City for quite a few years, and he was rather famous for that. So that one will be coming up, uh, hopefully, after the uh, Golden Bobcats uh, finally goes to press and gets going, right? If I can get through this final edit, Tim, <laughs> anything is possible. Uh, Paul, when do you, uh, for the Golden Bobcat story, uh, when do you, uh, if everything goes according to plan, when we can uh, readers expect to see that one on the shelves? I think uh, we, we start out the year uh, talking about if, if the um, manuscript was submitted in, in early March, the book might be available as early as August or September. And I, we're, we've slipped on that about two months now. There, there's just been a number of problems have come up, both for them and for me, that have just delayed things. They're not serious problems. Uh, my guess right now is the book will be out before the end of the year because the, the history press works rather fast. And I might say uh, Ken Robeson, uh, our well-known great Falls author and friend, uh, has had several books published by the History Press, and he, he swears by them. Okay. Well, that would be right about the time that uh, Montana State basketball season's kicking into high gear and be a great uh, treat for fans. They can watch the game, they can read the book, and uh, just, just enjoy basketball. <laughs> I hope so. And speaking of Montana State basketball, they, they've got so many new players and, and continuations from last year that mm-hmm. it looks like it'd be a tremendous, interesting team to watch. Absolutely. All right. Well, Paul, we are, uh, I guess we're, we're out of time. I appreciate you taking time to talk to us today. Thanks for the books and thanks for, uh, thanks for all this wealth of knowledge that you're sharing with, uh, with the communities uh, throughout Montana and, and the world. Well, th- thank you, Tim. It's, it's uh, you know, it, it, it just gets done if, if you keep at it. The, the, <laughs> the key to the thing is not any brilliance or anything. It's just working hard, right. unfortunately. But uh, I, I think it'll get done. 
You've been listening to a conversation with Paul Wiley, the author of several historical books detailing key figures and events on Montana history. Next time on McGonagall's Chronicles, Making Montana Connections. I used to sing a lot at uh, house parties in college. I used to uh, play in bar bands. And whenever I did a Johnny Cash song, I always got this terrific, uh, very great reaction from people. It's as close as we'll ever come to the man in black. Travis Merle Peterson reflects on leading the Cold Hard Cash Show, a Johnny Cash cover band from Big Sky Country all the way to the Ed Sullivan Theater, where he once performed in front of a nationwide audience on The Late Show with David Letterman. McGonagall's Chronicles Making Montana Connections is also now available on Amazon, as well as iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google. And I welcome your feedback and story ideas. Look for McGonagall's Chronicles on Facebook and Twitter. For McGonagall's Chronicles Making Montana Connections, I'm Tim McGonagall.